Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Food sustains physical life, and as such, it is of critical importance to each of us. Some in the country have an abundance, hunger, or food insecurity gnaws at others, in which group we find ourselves determines much of our current existence. What we eat also touches on other aspects of our lives besides need. Celebrations, emotional comfort, health, family traditions, and connections or breaking bread with others. For the purposes of this podcast series, we are, of course, interested in uncovering and understanding the connections between religion and food in the United States, what they are, what they mean, and their significance. To do another deep dive into just one aspect of this fascinating and meaningful subject area, we have as our guest Benjamin Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion and Chair of both Religion and Islamic World Studies at Lake Forest College. His research interests include religion in America, religion and culture, religion and science, and new religious movements. He is the author of Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion, and Prophets and Protons, New Religious Movements and Science in Late 20th Century America. For our discussion today, we are looking at his chapter, Quasi-Religious American Foodways, The Cases of Vegetarianism and Locofavorism, from the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. I am confident that today's podcast will help all of us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, And we trust that, as a result, listeners will see how indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its ability to fulfill its purposes in the world. We encourage our listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and register for future podcast notifications under the sign-up tab. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. First, and I think your answer here will help our listeners frame the discussion we're going to have, why and how did you develop a scholarly interest in the intersection of food and religion? Give us that, uh, that tale. Sure. It's, it's a great tale, actually. So it started, as, as you mentioned in, in the introduction, the kind introduction, my main area of research is the study of new religious movements. Uh, And I discovered through the study of new religious movements that food is often one of the primary ways that they engage in outreach and in service and in worship. Um, The Hare Krishnas are probably the best example. And I remember encountering them on the Washington Mall when I was maybe 
12 or 13 giving out free food. And I remember being confused, what is this religious group? Uh, what, what are they doing giving out their literature and their food? And that stuck with me, um, even though I studied other topics within new religious movements, food was always of interest. Uh, and then uh, one year, it must have been, I don't know, uh, over a decade ago now, I was uh, teaching a course on, on comparative religion and, and the topic I chose was food. Uh, and I remember being asked by my department chair at the time, you know, find something comparative. And many scholars of religion are wary of comparison because of course you end up, if you think of a Protestant topic, everything looks sort of Protestant, pick a Jewish topic, everything looks sort of Jewish. So I, I really was very careful and chose food and eating because it's universal. Uh, and that really led me down the path of more intensively studying religion and food. Uh, the book that you mentioned that we're discussing today, my chapter out of it uh, came out of uh, our work that I um, uh, collaborated with some colleagues to edit that book together uh, to really try to jumpstart a conversation among religious study scholars about what we can say about religion and food in North America. Okay. Well, that's, that, that is a great tale. Um, what's the, so just for our listeners, tell us the, the significance just in a word or two or a sentence or two of what you have found this inter, in this intersection? How, how significant should we view it as we listen here today? I don't think you can separate food from religion and religion from food. I think they're absolutely integrated. I think that when you start looking at religion and food and the connections between them, you discover you can say a lot about personal and collective identity, about the relationship to larger groups, to insiders, to outsiders, to broader uh, social forces and, and to American culture. Okay. Uh, I really, I think that it, it's a great way to, to get into the actual details of how religion is actually practiced on the ground. Um, and, and not just what we read about in a text or see in an institution, uh, what scholars would call lived religion. Right, lived religion, okay. Ben, the first words in your chapter are from someone you interviewed, quote, food is my religion, close quote. How do we view food in religious terms? Uh, well, so I think we have to separate it in terms of particular religions and then religious more broadly. Particular religions make all sorts of claims about particular foods. Uh, probably most of our, our listeners, viewers, are, are familiar with Jewish kashrut or kosher, uh, maybe Muslim halal. So there are sort of formal uh, religious codes about food. Uh, and there's also more informal religious practices involving food. Uh, there's a ritual, uh, so within Christianity, of course, uh, communion or Eucharist involves uh, food on, on, a, on a real level. I mean, it's not symbolically, I mean, it's, it's, it's not very filling. It's not a full meal, but it's nevertheless food, it's consumption. So we could actually look at the world's religions and we could find all sorts of details. But at a broader level, when we talk about religion more broadly, um, what food gets at is it's, it's what you're putting in your body. It, it, it becomes you. So religions have teachings about that. That's a deeply moral question about what becomes you, what goes into your body. Um, mm -hmm. This is a place where religions broadly, pretty much every religion I can think of, engages deep moral questions, ethical questions, questions of value, but what ought to go into one's body or what not ought not to, how should it be produced, how should it be raised, how should it be slaughtered if it's alive, how should it be prepared, um, with whom shall one eat it or one ought not to eat it, uh, all of these things deeply influence one's individual practice, but also one's communal identity, the sort of people you can eat with. Okay. I appreciate that framing. That'll, that'll help us as we move forward as well. 
You write of the, quote, religion of Coca-Cola, close quote, very briefly. I'd never sort of seen that uh, or, or read about that. Can you tell us more about this and perhaps some other examples of what you call quasi-religions and, and also, as you do, explain to the listeners what you mean by quasi-religions? Yeah, yeah. So that uh, I'm uh, riffing off of David Chittister there a bit. He wrote a um, an essay about the religion of Coca-Cola and the way in which uh, there's sort of a, a quasi-religious veneration of particular topics within American culture. Uh, so my approach to that is to recognize there are differences between what I would call real religions, re religious groups which understand themselves as such, are recognized by other religions and such, are recognized by, our, by the IRS as such, and things which look and act like religion, but may not necessarily be seen as religious by everyone and the practitioners of which may not say, this is my religion. Uh, so whether you do or don't like Catholicism or, or Orthodox Judaism or Sunni Islam or uh, Vaishnavism, uh, Hinduism, uh, we recognize them as religions. Uh, so I call that religion. Quasi-religions are things which act like or look like religion. Uh, things which seem to have some of the hallmarks of religion, uh, things like ritual, things like community, things like moral values and teachings, uh, things like conversion narratives, so we, we'll talk about them. Uh, so that's why I use quasi-religion as, as an analytic term, uh, to distinguish it from, from the groups which really um, are seen as religions by, by really all their adherents and by others as well. Right. Could you give us a few other examples and, and no additional details except for perhaps the, the name of them, other quasi-religions? Sure. You know, actually, uh, Gary Latterman has a great book on this, and uh, I forget the, the examples he gives. Uh, and food is not one of them, but I think he talks about sports and music. Uh, but to use uh, music as an example, uh, we could talk about uh, deadheads or um, uh, parrotheads, you know, people who follow um, particular musical groups as, as examples of sort of quasi-religions. So these are people who structure their lives around a particular group, uh, Jim Buffett or the Grateful Dead for those examples. Uh, people who might travel to different concerts, they might wear particular clothing, purchase different paraphernalia. It might start to look quite a bit like some sort of veneration or like a pilgrimage. Uh, they may uh, visit the, uh, the, the graves of, of deceased uh, members of the band. Uh, here we, we could talk about Graceland and Elvis, for example. All of this might start to look very, very religious. Um, but we're not saying someone is formally a member of the Church of Elvis or the, the Church of Jerry Garcia. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. So now, Ben, let's talk about vegetarianism as a quasi-religion. You write that, quote, vegetarianism possesses strong analogs to religious practice, close quote. Tell us what you found and the significance of those findings for our listeners. Yeah, so what vegetarianism has at its heart, which makes it look very religious to me, is a set of moral and ethical teachings that go along with practice. Uh, so at the heart of most religions are moral and ethical teachings. In fact, I've been, I've been told and I've heard tell that people claim that the heart of all religions is, is, is a moral teaching. I think people have said to me, I think I've read this before, that all religions boil down to what we call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Uh, I think you can buy a t-shirt that has it from uh, all the different religions on it. Um, but that, that's the idea that religions have at their heart moral or ethical teachings. Uh, vegetarianism does too. Uh, for most vegetarians that I interviewed, that I spoke with, uh, the heart of their vegetarianism came down to a moral and ethical position. What is right to do versus what is wrong to do? What is aligned with the proper flow of the universe? What is disaligned with it? What is good with the capital G in a platonic sense? What is wrong or evil 
in, 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 a, in an ideal sense. These are moral teachings. These are teachings of value. And this is what we find in religion and we find it in vegetarianism as well. Uh, think about how worked up people get about what food is or is not appropriate to eat. Uh, the idea that eating a particular food is murder, for example, meat is murder, is sometimes I think a slogan I've seen uh, vegans particularly make. Um, that, that's a strong statement to say that it, it, it is murder. Um, with it go all sorts of, uh, of non-empirical claims that we see at the heart of many religions about what is the nature of a soul, what is the nature of what is, is right and wrong, what is the nature of consciousness, uh, who has rights, all of those things get wrapped up. Um, we, can, we could have the same conversation about, for example, you know, abortion, uh, what, what, you know, the, the nature of uh, what is human, what is a human life and, and where, where do rights begin and, and end. The same thing with vegetarianism. It's the idea that, um, that animals have certain rights and, and that is very religious or quasi-religious, you might want to say. Right. And then of course it becomes practice. It's about practice. Uh, it's about things you do. And that's what we see in all religions as well. Religions aren't just sets of values and teachings. Uh, they're not philosophies. I mean, they have philosophy at their core, but they're not just philosophies. Religions are put into practice. And that's where vegetarianism really looks like a religion rather than just an abstract philosophy. So when you interviewed these vegetarians, did you ever uh, hear them talk in some ways about... Um, conflict between their vegetarianism and whatever formal religious uh, traditions they had or still have? If it's, you know, if it, it sounds very much religious, does it come into conflict for these people? Or yeah, that's interesting. So uh, what I did as, as part of my, uh, my research, these were oral histories. So I would have a sort of a very small number of prompts we would start with. I really would try to let my um, interlocutors speak and tell their stories. And then after we've spoken for a while, I would tell them more about my research. Um, and one of the things I would say is I, I'm interested, they would know I study religion, but I would say I'm interested in the way in which your practices can be compared to religion. And usually that would lead to a very nuanced conversations about just what you asked. Um, I did have um, participants, uh, interlocutors who who did emphasize conflict, who would say my religion doesn't preach uh, vegetarianism. It, call, it, it, it calls for omnivorism. Uh, this would generally be, be Christians. Um, and my vegetarianism can be seen as, as in conflict with that. Um, but by and large, most of the people I spoke with emphasized uh, a continuity between their religious identities and their foodway identities. Uh, that their food practices aligned with the moral values which they drew from their religious identities. Right, okay. In some ways extending them. Sure, right. Some augmentation of some sort. Now we are going to move to a newer food way, Ben, locovorism. In this section, you explain that locovorism possesses obvious religious parallels. Can you elaborate and include a definition as well? Absolutely. So we have to set ourselves in time. We have to be a bit of a historically minded here. When I was doing this research, it was right after the publication of Barbara Kingsolver's Animal Vegetable, Animal Vegetable Miracle and uh, Michael Pollan's Omnivore Dilemma. Both of these books uh, were by authors, well-known authors, um, who were pushing for what we come to call locavorism. Locavorism is the idea that you 
ought to eat food which is produced locally. It's defined differently by different people, sometimes within 50 miles of where you live, sometimes within 100 miles. Sometimes it's, it means it has to be brought on a truck and not on a train or a plane. Uh, sometimes it's just exactly what you can produce you know, in your backyard. So there's varieties of locavorism. But the overall shared idea is that it is the right thing to do to eat food which is locally grown and the wrong thing to do to eat food which is not locally grown. This is often based on ecological environmental ideas the idea that uh, what we would today call a carbon footprint, but it often goes well beyond that to sort of a spiritual connection to the land, uh, that if you are rooted in a place, the right thing to do is to eat the material produced in that place. Uh, and it is wrong to align yourself with a different place. Uh, and this is a very sort of uh, quasi-religious, almost spiritual idea that you are connected to the land somehow. Um, often the proponents of this often cite Native Americans or other groups that have more explicit teachings about being tied to the land. Okay. Now you write uh, in your chapter much more about this food way than vegetarianism. Why is that? Well, it was really taking off at the time I was doing this. And I think if I were to redo this research now, I'd probably to uh, go to vegetarianism, veganism. I'd probably go to uh, gluten-free eating or sort of a paleo right now. Uh, but at the time, uh, locavorism was really taking off and it was seen as, as a, by many people as sort of a rising food way, particularly where I was living in Southern Appalachia. Uh, this was uh, tied to many of sort of the um, all this research was done in Southern Appalachia, basically near Asheville, North Carolina, if you know where that is. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, there's a long history within Southern Appalachia of sort of, you know, the independence and the idea that um, a Southern Appalachian folk want to live their own way and do their own thing. So I think it really connected with uh, the identities of many of the people I was speaking with. Right. Okay. Towards the end of this section, uh, you state this, locophorism certainly functions as a meaning of investing one's space with sacred meaning which you briefly mentioned there, since it ties together ideas of life, death, meaning, and practice with reference to space. Can you give us a little bit more explanation here, Ben, of the broader significance? Yeah, let me give you uh, an example of that. So I remember doing one of these interviews, one of these oral histories in a garden. And it was a woman who, um, who I had, I forgot how I found her. I think someone else referred me to her, but um, I had to drive up into, you know, the valleys to find her. And she had a beautiful, um, a small little home, but she had a gigantic garden. I think the garden was two or two times larger than her small little house. And she really wanted us to do the, the interview, the oral history out there. So we sat there and as we would speak, she would refer to different parts of her garden. She would talk about her kohlrabi. She would talk about her broccoli. She would talk about the onions and the garlic that she was growing and saving. And it was so clear that so much of her identity and her day-to-day -day practice was tied up in the land and her connections to the land. It was no longer simply inert dirt. It was no longer simply acreage on a map. It had meaning for her. It was where she lived her life. And it's how she identified herself as someone who ate locally, ultra-locally, as in her backyard. She tried to eat as much as she could, just food which she had grown. I remember she insisted when we were done with the oral history that she that she that I take some kohlrabi with me, uh, which I actually had never had before. It's sort of a strange little vegetable if you haven't had it before. It looks like a flying saucer, sort of. <laughs> but uh, she um, it looks like a Sputnik actually. So she um, she gave me a kohlrabi, and, and I remember her saying that um, when I tasted this, I would be tasting of the land of her land. I'd be tasting of her effort. I'd be tasting of of what she had put into it. 
Um, and it, it, I don't think she was intentionally trying to sound like, like the Eucharist here, but there was a very Eucharistic sort of statement of this, eat of this, it is me. Uh, and that's, mm. um, again, that, that's what I took from it, um, that in some ways this was tied up in her identity and her um, and who she was. And I was taking communion effectively to use a religious parallel uh, of her and of the land. Now, again, we should say quasi-religious. She never claimed this literally was her, uh, right. but it was, it was symbolic. Right. Wow. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. It was good kohlrabi, too, I have to say. Sure, sure. I've never had it. I, yeah, it's Sputnik. Uh, sort of like a cabbage crossed with uh, something. I don't know. Okay. But it looks like Sputnik. That's what I should look for. Sputnik, yeah. We are talking with Benjamin Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College and author of the chapter Quasi-Religious American Foodways, The Cases of Vegetarianism and Locoverism in the edited book, Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. Ben, I want to get to the most interesting part of your chapter for me, and that is when you use religious conversion as a lens to better understand these quasi-religions. First, can you explain in layman's terms for our listeners what the two processes are that you mentioned in your chapter of religious conversion? And then we'll go into applying them to the two uh, subjects. Yeah, and this was fascinating to me too. I should say, I didn't go into this research thinking that I was going to focus on conversion. I really just wanted to get the oral histories of the people involved. As I listened to them talk about their relationships with food, what I heard were conversion narratives. Uh, and conversion narratives can be structured in one of two ways. This is a, uh, um, uh, there's different models for how you can think about it, but um, uh, the active or the passive conversion narrative is sort of one of the ways to think about it. And that's what I use in this, in this chapter. Uh, so an active conversion uh, is the idea that you're a seeker, you're seeking out, uh, you recognize that where you, the state you're in right now is wrong, you're seeking out something new, and that's an active conversion. I did hear a number of those people who said that uh, they thought there was a problem with the way they were eating. It was making them unhealthy, it was making them unhappy, it was causing damage to the environment, it was dis disconnecting them from the land or from animals. Uh, so they were looking for something. Uh, and that's parallel to, to people who talk about uh, religious conversion in terms of they weren't happy with what they were brought up. They were looking for something else. They were in church shopping or shul shopping or you went to different meditation centers. Uh, so that's one sort of approach to a conversion narrative. Uh, the other is the passive model. Uh, the passive model is... Um, is a bit like um, like Saul struck down on the road, right? The idea that um, you're not looking for it. And then out of nowhere, you have this moment where things were going swimmingly and then all of a sudden you're struck down and realize that everything you thought you knew was right is actually wrong. Uh, and I, I remember probably the most powerful of those stories that I heard, and I believe this is in the chapter as well, uh, was a, a person who said they, they had to visit a slaughterhouse as part of a, a school uh, field trip. And they, they had never thought about their food. They never thought intentionally about what they put in their mouth. For them, meat came from a package in a grocery store or a package they bought at McDonald's and they put it in their mouth and they ate it and never thought about too much about it. When they went to a slaughterhouse, they had this realization that what meat was, that meat was dead animal and that it was cut off the of carcass of another living thing which had been killed for them to eat. And they, I remember this person I spoke with, um, I remember them saying that this was, um, they, they, they felt physically sick. Uh, they felt overwhelmed. And the next time they tried to eat meat, they, they just, they, it tasted like poison to them. Um, this is the idea that it happened to them. And I don't recall if it was this individual who said it to me or it was someone else who said something similar. I remember them saying they didn't want it to happen. 
um, that it caused impediments in their life. They didn't want to be vegetarian or vegan or locavore. This actually made life more difficult, but they felt as if they had to do it. They were ethically morally drawn to it as the mm. only way to live. And they would happily have gone on with their life and not live this way if only they hadn't have had this experience. Um, when I read that, I think a bit about, uh, you know, some of Paul's letters and the way in which he talks about how this is, you know, he, he, did, he didn't set up to become a Christian. For, the, for listeners who are not Christian, and so, so Paul, Saul is sort of a classic example of this. Um, right. That um, the idea of sort of this conversion, it happens to you. Right, right. Okay. So was that story the story about Jessica that you just shared? I maybe I use pseudonyms in the in the chapter. Of okay, course. okay. There were three or four that um, that were very very similar. Um, I really did, I didn't combine the stories, so each story is its own is its own thing. Okay. Because I use pseudonyms, sometimes I forget who I matched up with. Okay. Who. So so you just shared a story about the um, the a very uh, detailed story about it, uh, the passive model, right? This happened to her. Can you give us uh, another example of that and maybe some examples of the more active model? Yeah, yeah. There was um, another informant, another um, interlocutor talked about um, study, talked about reading and talked about spending years and years reading, um, thinking that there was a problem with the way he was eating. and he recognized there were environmental, ecological problems with the way was, you know, he was eating. I believe he, um, this was the, the gentleman who referred to um, reading a diet for a small planet. Um, uh, the, the idea that there's an ecological crisis with the eating of meat uh, and the eating of sort of particularly meat, which is, which is produced in the um, insensitive way it is in terms of the land, land use. Uh, so he did a lot of reading about this. He read about what different religions taught about vegetarianism. And through all of his research, eventually, slowly, he came to embrace the idea of vegetarianism. Um, this often was a, um, uh, the story I heard from locavores as well. Uh, locavores tended not to have that sort of spontaneous it happened to me, uh, but more the idea that they had encountered locavorism through the media, through reading, um, and that through reading about it, uh, they uh, they decided this was a change they wanted to make in their life. Uh, in some ways, this gets back to the idea of print culture is so central to the American experience, right? Mm-hmm. Or the qua- American quasi-religious experience. I think about um, David Hall's work, you know, the great Puritan historian talking about print culture in American religious history. So this is quasi-religious history, but it's the same idea. You read something and it convinces you. Uh, how wonderfully American, right? Right, right, absolutely. Did you find uh, any correlation between the quasi-religious food way and the conversion process? Did one belong more to the other? Yeah, I, I'm really, so, so yes, the first answer is yes, that the um, vegetarians and vegans particularly tended to have more passive uh, ways of describing their food way conversions uh, as compared to the locavores who had more active. However, I should be careful to say this is not a quantitative study. This was a sure. qualitative study. Absolutely. Um, I suspect if one were to do a quantitative study, one would find that that that, that followed through. But I, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to make an, uh, a claim that I can't. Uh, that's not justified. Right. Um, I, I would also note something which is interesting. And again, because I did qualitative research, I can't really prove this. But I, I would guess surveys would would support it. Um, the sort of people who embrace these sort of all-encompassing intentional food practices tended to have less all-embracing, intensive, more conventional religious practices as well. 
people who were deeply dedicated to a particular religious identity tended not to then embrace some sort of new food identity as central to their lives as well. Um, mm. Again, it makes sense intuitively. If you're already deeply involved in some religious tradition, you're not going to be out looking for some new food practice, uh, likely because your religious tradition already is, is giving you the moral, you know, ethical teachings you need. Um, I suspect this, this could be you know, quantitatively demonstrated, uh, but at least from my, you know, anecdotal evidence, it seems to connect. Right. No, that does make sense. It, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, sure. Did you find people that were very, very religious and at the same time a, a vegetarian or a locovore? Yeah, but the very, very religious, I think we, we have to sort of interrogate. Sure. Um, very, very religious in terms of emphasizing the, 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 the teachings of Christ, you know, the idea of caring for the poor and things like that, not necessarily in terms of uh, frequent attendance at houses of worship Good. or identity with a particular yep. denomination. Yep. Thanks uh, for making that distinction. Right. Okay. Uh, but yeah, there were plenty of people who, who said they were they were deeply religious. Um, right. Again, it seemed to me the sort of people who were who, who identified so closely with a particular community of practice were probably less drawn to to these sort of foodway conversions because they already had other sort of centers of practice and identity in their lives. Sure, sure. And if we look at them as quasi religions, it's hard just to create space in one's life for two. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, exactly. a, a quasi-religion and a religion, both of which take up energy and emotional space and physical doing. It would be hard to do both. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I should actually uh, note the exception would be um, uh, people who had converted to, to, to Buddhism or Hinduism or something like that. You know, a right. person who becomes a, a, a Buddhist and a, the sort of Buddhism that calls for vegetarianism. But then the vegetarianism was going along with the Buddhism. It right. wasn't necessarily, you know, a separate package. It was, it was, it was part of their, their broader religious identity. Right. Uh, but there, there, there were a few people like that who had sort of, you know, they, they got into sort of, you know, Buddhist practice and that, that was connected to their vegetarianism. Hmm. Okay. At the end of the chapter, Ben, you write two things that need elaboration, I think, for our listeners. We've probably touched on some of it, but I'm going to ask you these questions anyways. First, and I'm quoting here, quote, becoming a vegetarian or a locavore is very much akin to a religious conversion, and this is because vegetarianism and locovarism are very much akin to religion, close quote. Would you elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, one of the things that really struck me um, was when you have a religious conversion or a foodway mm -hmm. conversion, it's not just changing a set of moral or ethical uh, ideals with one who lives one's life. It affects uh, who you're going to spend time with. Uh, if when you become a vegetarian, uh, that's going to limit. And if you are, are deeply committed to vegetarianism or, or locavorism even more, that's going to limit your ability to to share meals with people who do not share your um, uh, your new foodway practices. Um, just in the same way, when a person joins a new uh, a new religious community, that's going to affect the social networks they're part of. I mean, social networks in the broad sense, not the, the not, I don't mean Facebook here, um, but right. the, sort of the social groups one is part of um, that these practices are deeply tied to community uh, and that we need to remember that while well, well, food is, is ultimately the eating of food is, is an individual thing. It's also a communal thing, just like religion on the one level is individual it has to do with, with beliefs and things like that, but it's always practiced in, in, in communities. Uh, 
And that's something when we when I started to think about foodways as akin to religions, that's really something that came that came to the fore of my analysis was that uh, when we think about them as something like a religious conversion, some of the same questions you might ask of a religious convert, you can ask about a foodway convert. Did you find that you had to uh, hang out with new people? Uh, did you find yourself uncomfortable uh, with, with people who are part of your old life? Did you feel as if you had to shun them or you were being shunned? Did you feel as if you had to, uh, to, to start a new life? Uh, did you feel as if you wanted to move somewhere else and start over? Some of the same questions that one might ask a right. religious convert. One could ask a foodway convert. Wow. Okay. Thank you. The last sentence of your chapter, here's the, the second thing I'd like you to elaborate on. Uh, you write this, quote, like religious beliefs, practices, uh, and membership in religious communities, beliefs, practices, and communities based on food help assuage anxiety and root people in space and society, close quote. Can you unpack this a bit? This is a heavy statement. Yeah, and here I'm trying to, to sort of um, to step out of necessarily what my informants, what my interlocutors said about themselves, to try to think about how, how these practices were functioning for them. Um, the idea that we, we live in, uh, in, in a moment where food is, is a source of, of, of problems. And you started with this actually in the introduction. I think you, you mentioned, you know, we, we live in a place where there's food deserts, where there's food abundance at the same time, where people are starving and people have, have deep problems with overeating and obesity simultaneously. Uh, there are problems with our food way. Uh, many of the people I spoke with referred to, um, uh, to, to the standard American diet, as they call it, SAD or SAD. Uh, sometimes they would just call it the SAD, the standard American diet. The idea that there's something sad about the way most of us are eating, there's something wrong with it. It was causing ultimately anxiety for many of the people I spoke with, that they felt uncomfortable, sometimes on a conscious aware level. So the gentleman who was reading lots of books about it, um, but sometimes in retrospect, uh, the, the person, the people who had the more um, uh, passive conversions, uh, they would say, well, in retrospect, perhaps I, I, was, I was also anxious about it. I was, uh, I was never fully comfortable. I'd, this hadn't risen to the surface. I wasn't really aware of uh, the degree to which I was taking part in a food way, which was unhealthy for me and the environment and unjust for animals or for plants or the land. Uh, all the food ways that, that these people are practicing help manage help assuage in, in, in the text I wrote, uh, that anxiety, those concerns. People don't want to live under a, uh, uh, um, a shadow of anxiety. Uh, they don't want to live in such a way where they're uncomfortable with what they have to do every single day, which is eat. Uh, people want to be able to have meaning in their lives. And food practices are a central way of doing this, along with religion. And, and that's what I was getting at. Right. Okay. Thank you. So you uh, are a professor of religion. So I want to ask you here at the end, in, in conclusion, if you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either, in, well, the, the chapter in that book, either in terms of important historical transformations you are charting or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment. It's hmm. a great question. Well, as I said, if I were to redo the research now, I think I would look at different groups, but I think I would still find some of the same basic ideas, which is that there, there are people who are on quasi-religious quests for meaning, and there are people who it just sort of happens to them. Um, 
I suspect you could take the same basic attack uh, to look at American religion more broadly. Uh, that uh, you could trace a lineage of, of the seekers, people who have been looking for, for something new, something radical, something to disrupt their lives, and the people for whom it just happened to. Um, but I think what I, would, what I would take from that is uh, I'd like to avoid simplistic narratives that simply say um, people were bamboozled, people were brainwashed, people were convinced, people were sort of forced. And the sort of uh, the, the simultaneously equally um, a problematic narratives of it's all free will, it's all choice, you know, I, I, I choose this. Um, somewhere between those, the truth lies. Yes, we're all influenced. Yes, we're, we're living in a place bombarded by different messages and religions and concepts. Um, but we're all as individuals uh, making our choices uh, within the context of communities and other, um, other people. Um, and avoiding simplistic ways to sort of boil it down, I think is important. Right, okay. And I guess, uh, Ben, I'll add one last question that I just thought of. If you can take a step back um, from sort of food and religion and, and as a, a professor of religion, um, survey sort of religion in America over history from the beginning to present day, what's where do you put what you found? Where do you put your findings of the intersection of food and religion in this very um, broad, deep, and super significant part of American history? Where does it fit in? You know, I teach um, at the Lake Forest College where I teach, I teach a survey, American Religious Survey class. And um, one of the things I have my students do is I have them create their own meta narratives. You know, I give them sort of a, I say, here's the narrative I want to focus on. And in some ways for, for listeners who are familiar with American religious history, I mean, we're, we're all sort of responding to Sidney Alstrom in certain ways, you know, is it the Puritans or not? Um, but then I, I, I asked my students to work with me to think about ways we can imagine American religious history. Um, the, the challenges and the growth of, of diversity and pluralism, the way in which it's one voice or multiple voices, uh, I think that's, that food practices get to the heart of that. Uh, when I teach on American Judaism, for example, the debates uh, among American Jews about the kosher laws, about whether uh, to be Jewish required observing the kosher laws or not, and to what, in what ways it's an impediment to follow the, the kosher laws, the food laws in America. Um, the, the way in which uh, food gets at the heart of, of personal identity and practice and then inserts you into these broader conversations um, is, is, I think, says something broader about American religion. Uh, Ultimately, food is something we do every day. And so I think that that's why I've always valued looking at it because it is, um, it is something which, which, which we have to do. Um, and I think that, again, it's a lens to thinking about these bigger questions about individual practice and, and community identity and the relationship between what I'm doing versus uh, what you're doing versus what people around us are doing uh, and the influences and the people who are telling us that we should be doing different things. Right, okay, thank you, final word. We have been talking with Benjamin Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College and author of the chapter Quasi-Religious American Foodways, The Cases of Vegetarianism and Locoverism in the edited book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. At the conclusion of this episode, we trust that listeners understand a little bit more about re what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion and have a deeper appreciation of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States and seeing to its protection as an indispensable part of the fragile American experiment in self-government.
I would like to remind our listeners to go to storyofamericanreligion.org and navigate to the sign-up tab to register for future podcast notifications. Ben, thank you so much for being with us and doing the hard work of researching and writing a chapter in a book that helps us all understand America better. It's been super enlightening for me and I think our listeners, and I hope you've enjoyed the time as well. I really have. It's a pleasure to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.